The House of Roll journeys far and wide to bring you exceptional quality kitchen and bath fixtures. We've discovered the world's best craftsmen and techniques. Using materials native to the region and tools accustomed to individual craftsmen, we strive for perfection every step of the way. With all of this, you'll see the details of your own story, the story of a life well-crafted. This is the story Craft tells. Welcome to the House of Roll. The promise of America is being squandered. How are we going to restore our nation back to a sensible, citizen-centric government? It's time for populism with a purpose. Welcome to Reimagine America with Joyce Cordy. Joyce is a businesswoman, not a politician. And she's here to offer pragmatic, possible, and post-partisan solutions for the 21st century. Now, your host for Reimagine America, Joyce Cordy. Welcome to the Reimagine America Radio Hour. And yes, yes, the traditional media and our favorite partisan politicians on both sides of the aisle have been very busy this week, working overtime, trying to stir the pot to inflame your passions and fill their campaign coffers. All of that well-televised fire, fury, and bedevilment. I mean, Thursday, I was gone half the day, and I didn't miss a minute of those interesting Star Chamber hearings because everybody was repeating them on a do-loop. But anyway, all that fire, fury, and bedevilment just extends and intensifies the hyper-partisanship in both Washington and Sacramento, But it didn't solve any problems, did it? So my purpose is different. My purpose is to inform you, to give you information that will enable you to make an independent judgment on current events and to encourage you to act on that judgment. Whether that means giving a contribution or merely, and it's not that hard to do, you can vote very easily in this state. All you have to do is ask your county registrar for an absentee ballot. They mail it to you. You get 30 days to make up your mind and mail it back. Not that hard to do. Not enough people do it. And that's why we have hyperpartisanship. But I'm a businesswoman. So I look at the numbers. Because the numbers tell me what needs attention. What we've got to triage right now and then how to prioritize necessary long-term changes. So in the numbers this week, there are some big ones. Try $957 billion with a B dollars. That was the United that was the entire United Worldwide NATO budget last year, 2017, of which the United States of America paid billion, in other words, 72% of the whole of the 29-member organization. We got to talk about that. Twelve Russian military officers were indicted for the 2016 hack of the Democratic National Committee and the Democratic Congressional Re-Election Committees. The question beyond the criminality is, was that an act of war in the 21st century? 62019 dollars That's the amount of congressional salary that went down the uh, 
proverbial drain on Thursday in front of the TV cameras. Now, understand that that is only the actual compensation of the 75 members of Congress who sat in that room all day. It does not include any of the staff time. It does not include any of the prep time. It does not include any of the time of the 15 or so FBI personnel who were in the room, et cetera. So $62,019 is based on an assumption that Congress people actually work 2,080 hours like most of us, right, Um, for a specific salary um, of $174,000 a year, plus benefits, plus perks, plus office space, et cetera. But I'm just taking their basic pay, and I'm making the assumption they really work a 40-hour work week, 48 weeks a year. So the fact of the matter is $62,000. Nineteen dollars, even if we make all these assumptions and assume they're true, and we probably know they're not. Well, that's more than the average family of four in the United States earns in a year. That that's about two thousand dollars more that was spent on Thursday if we only look at that one little piece of the total cost of that event. And last but not least for our time together this week, we've seen a steep decline in the value of your blue recycling bin from $100 a ton to merely $5 a ton. Wow. All that hard work we've been doing and we're losing money. Interesting. How are we going to fix this? I'm not saying we shouldn't do recycling because we should. But we need to take a a money-losing proposition as a state population and turn it into a money-making solution. And how can we do that? So let's start on the global stage this morning, and then we'll get down to um, the local level a little bit later in the show. I got to say, President Trump did stir up the NATO meeting in several ways this week. I mean, um, however much I may agree with his ultimate objective, he did actually, it was a a moment of bull in the China shop. His challenge to the fundamental rationale behind NATO brought a rare moment of bipartisanship in the United States Congress. A unanimous vote in the House of a resolution, non-binding resolution in support of NATO um, as the most important um, organization that binds together all of the liberal democracies on earth. And it was 97 to 2 in the United States Senate. What else could bring the United States Senate to almost unanimous um, agreement? President Trump is fixated on the transitory numbers that are involved, what we paid in NATO and, and 
the uh, balance of trade with the European Union. And those are two very different things. And he has a tendency to try to to um, merge those at the expense of the historic and strategic interests of Western democracy. A commitment to common values and mutual defense that has lasted more than 70 years and brought to major, to more than half the world, peace, prosperity, and the expansion of democracy and human rights. And President Trump is not wrong, okay? NATO, like all things in the 21st century, has to continue to evolve if it's going to prosper. That means more than just adding more members. It started out with 14 at the end of World War Two in 1949 when it was formed, there were 14 member nations. Germany was not one of them. Um, and there are today 29, including Turkey, which sits um, not just geographically, but uh, politically uh, atop um, the bridge between uh, a Christian Europe and a Muslim Middle East. We've got to take a different approach. We've got to take a different approach to collective defense. Cyber. Artificial intelligence. Placing more civilians and fewer soldiers at risk. Do you understand that, right? Artificial intelligence as a military weapon will put more civilians and fewer soldiers at risk. So you I think that's an important thing that NATO needs to work on. We've got to recognize within the NATO organization that there are different adversaries. And I think that might be a really good moment to stop and take a commercial break and remind you you're listening to the Reimagine America Radio Hour, and I'm your host, Joyce Cordy. For more information on today's topic, visit reimagineamerica.org, reimagineamerica.org. Now, back to Reimagine America on 860 AM, The Answer. And as we were talking before the break, NATO in the 21st century needs to recognize that there are different adversaries. And you know, that starts from within the organization. I mean, Turkey move toward totalitarianism and their flirtation with Russia are an issue which NATO must address in a very frontal way. I agree completely with Senator Lindsey Graham, who said last week they've got to make up their minds. They either want F-35 jet fighters from the United States or they want Russian anti-aircraft systems. They cannot have them both. And I think that's a major issue that um, instead of pounding the table, President Trump should have looked at the Secretary General um, and at Erdogan and said, the three of us should have a conversation about this um, situation. And yes, it is time for President Erdogan to make a decision. You're in NATO or you're an ally of Russia. You cannot be both. The world doesn't work that way. The Russians don't get that kind of shades of gray. They use them. 
Modern Russia is different from the Soviet Union. Imperialism on a smaller but more strategic scale is now the methodology of the Russian Federation. They like to stir the pot by being the guy in the middle. Iran versus the United States. Iran versus Israel. How can they play all sides against the middle to their advantage? They being the middle. They, the Russians, being the middle. So there's another really fundamental question that President Trump needed to raise with NATO in anticipation of his meeting with Putin. And that is, what does the outcome in Syria, what does the recent violation of the last um, agreement made between NATO and the Russians on the topic of Syria Syria, uh, being violated, what does that mean for the NATO alliance? How is the alliance, plus their friends in the Arab League, going to respond to that? That would have been a really good topic uh, as the uh, fighting rages in southern Syria. That would have been a really good topic in anticipation of um, the European Union's decision about the the remaining five members of the JC of the Iranian deal – Uh, before they decide what the next steps are, that would have been a really good subject to have a thorough discussion on so that there was a single view among the NATO members. But that didn't happen. NATO needs to look at Muslim terrorism separate from the Muslim population of the the greater Middle East and, um, and Asia. NATO looks needs to look at and figure out how to address China's growing economic power. You know, the Chinese dismiss Western norms in areas like intellectual property theft and global piracy. How will NATO react? Cornering global markets on raw materials, for example, in Afghanistan, where NATO has paid the ultimate price, and the Chinese are reaping the copper rewards. National strategies aimed at weakening the industrialized West. Hey, Germany and Netherlands, Italy, United States, it's all Canada. It is all of you who are at risk, not just the United States. And collective defense is the purpose of NATO. Doesn't mean mortars. It means collective defense of the values of democracy and human rights and the prosperity of the NATO members, states. And last but not least, there's NATO versus Mother Nature. the, The planet is changing. I mean, we see that right now in California's unprecedented fire season. So... What will NATO's response be to things like climate science and the results of migration patterns that come from a changing uh, natural environment and the economic inequality that leads instability around the world? Solutions need to recognize that there is a relationship between economic inequality in the world at large and migration. 
And you know what? President Trump may turn out to be a prophet. He may be prophetic in telling Europe that migration will change, perhaps end, European culture, quote, as we know it, end quote. And I think that's a valid risk. And I'm Joyce Cordy, and you're listening to the Reimagine America Radio Hour. And let's talk about what perhaps from a business point of view, from a, from a corporate you know, from, from a multinational corporation point of view, you know, that's my point of view, um, in, instead of, of seeing those bigger strategic objectives, of putting those things, which I think he knows, but instead of, of, of voicing them in terms of the objectives, President Trump got stuck in the momentary transactional numbers. Yes, the United States spent $668 billion with AB in, on NATO in 2017, and that is 72% of the total NATO budget of $957 billion. And he's absolutely right. He's completely correct that the economic realities of NATO's founding in, 14, in 1949 are not the economic realities of 2018. How many of you out there remember the Marshall Plan? Either because you were alive and experienced it, or you at least studied it in high school history way back when, um, and, and understand how important the Marshall Plan was in saving Europe. Europe had been decimated by war. And there was fear of starvation, destabilization, and a reemergence of despotism. And the United States, who had come out of the war more prosperous and intact, with the exception of Pearl Harbor, provided a lot of bridge relief funding that became the basis upon which post-World War II relatively wealthy Europe built itself. And so, yes, today, the European Union and Britain take that total 20, you know, 28 country or 27 country um, block and, and their economy is one or two per percentage points different from the total U.S. economy. In other words, NATO is 50 percent of the world's economy. So why does the United States bear 72% of the cost? You know, it's like we ought to bear half as a quarter of the world's total GDP and Europe and the, and, and the British and, and the Turks, if they're going to stay, need to uh, contribute the other half in order to continue to have a liberal democratic world uh, that can deter uh, both st state and non-state actors in the many areas we've already discussed. He's absolutely right. And, I and, and the, the last two American presidents, both President Bush 43 and President Obama, made the same case. They didn't make it with the same pounding on the table they didn't make it with the frontal assault on individual members of the alliance, 
but they made the point and they got some small incremental gains. So I completely get President Trump's frustration with the glacial pace of change in NATO. And Secretary General Saltenberg is absolutely right to credit Trump with shaking up the status quo. But now that you shook up the status quo, it is time. Mike Pompeo has a tough job. Thank God for him and General uh, Mattis. Um, It is now time to find a way for NATO to begin to make a more rapid transition to a more equitable financial uh, base. And in in the course of doing that, to actually develop some new industrial sectors where we can um, work in concert and we can share uh, uh, both learning and responsibility and prosperity. And, you know, there is another thing that President Trump is correct about, and that is it's not just that we're paying 72% of the cost of NATO, but we have a $142 billion structural trade deficit. Now, if we're all friends and allies, and we gave you all that money up front, we ought to have a barrier-free trading alliance. We ought to be, I mean, NATO would be stronger if it was a, if it was a free market system. So... President Trump, one more time, is right. Absolutely right. We should have, within the NATO uh, world, free and fair trade, and that trade should be reciprocal. And we'll be back to tell you why it's not reciprocal today. For more information on today's topic, visit reimagineamerica.org. Reimagineamerica.org. Now, back to Reimagine America. On 860 AM, The Answer. And we're back. And we're going to talk for just a couple more minutes about NATO because there's only so much you can say. But some of it's important. We do have an imbalance of trade. And that imbalance of trade is based on a very simple premise. The European Union does not allow you to sell Goods or services, neither goods nor services that do not have European content in them within the Union. We don't have a similar requirement with Europe as we do in the duty-free areas um, covered by NAFTA with Mexico and Canada. And if we had a NATO-wide common market, we could eliminate some of those tariffs, which would add uh, to uh, job creation in the United States in the European auto manufacturing sector. Did you know that all of the three series BMWs for worldwide distribution are made in, um, I believe, Tennessee and Alabama? Uh, That's because our labor costs are less in in Europe uh, with their highly socialized um, economies. So, I don't think the president is wrong on any area that he addressed with NATO. 
Um, where I would take issue with what he did was, um, you know, I come from a school of, of negotiation that says, uh, I'd like to create a win-win. And you don't create a win-win by taking on the biggest part of European NATO, Germany, um, in a frontal assault, especially when it's a woman uh, chancellor, um, and, and making a spectacle um, in front of the world, especially when the numbers aren't right, okay? Germany gets 50% of the natural gas it uses for power generation from Russia, but they only generate 20% of their power from natural gas. So Norway and Russia supply equal amounts of natural gas to Germany. And so while I am sure that a consideration in the Crimea situation was the uh, access to that 10% of their power generation on the part of the Germans, I'm sure it was not definitive. Definitive was the reluctance to enter into what they feared would be an armed incursion in order to uh, retake Crimea. Should the Germans be imposing stiffer penalties on Russia to free their grip on Crimea if that is the objective of NATO? Yes. But it's how you go about it. It's how you go about persuading rather than cajoling Angela Merkel to do the right thing. And that's where I believe members of the Senate and the House and many of us were uncomfortable with President Trump's presentation this week. We completely agree with the objective he has in mind, which is a more equitable distribution of cost and responsibility among the NATO nations. And on that note, let's move along to talk about 15 minutes late. Ooh, the president was 15 minutes late for tea with the queen. <sighs> she was not happy. There was a split screen, just as we were about to have a very important indictment released in the United States, and you could see her looking at her watch. You don't keep the queen of England waiting for tea. Ooh. But in the meantime, Rod Rosenstein announced a grand jury indictment against 12 Russian spies who were stealing the scene in Washington from the president and the queen marching before the, the color guard. And you know what? That indictment's been coming for a long time. Observers of the Mueller investigation, people like me who say, I'm not going to form an opinion as to what happened until somebody gives me the facts. You know, I've learned over a long career that facts matter and that supposition can lead me to embarrassing wrong conclusions. So we've all waited uh, since February when uh, the Mueller team 
released their first indictment against 13 Russian individuals and three companies for conducting a social media disinformation campaign against Hillary Clinton and the American electorate during the 2016 presidential campaign. We kept asking, hmm, who hacked the the DCCC or, as it's known, the DCCC and the DNC and Hillary Clinton's campaign office? We kept wondering, you know, they got the social media piece, but who actually did the hacking? Do we know that? Well, it turns out, we turned, it turns out that on Friday, July 13th, Friday the 13th, Oops, I wonder if that's an ominous date. The other shoe dropped. And you know what? It was a steel-toed work boot that dropped. It actually names 12 senior Russian military members. They named them by name and rank and address of the building they work in. We are better at intelligence than we give ourselves credit for, folks, because that was not easy to track down. The specific and individual crimes against, against the United States are specified. And what is, what is shocking is the length of time and the elaborate nature of the actual cyber um, Attack. It was an attack against the fundamentals of our democracy. And we'll be back in just a moment to talk about it a little bit more. For more information on today's topic, visit reimagineamerica.org. Reimagineamerica.org. Now, back to Reimagine America on 860 AM, The Answer. And we're back. What did our Russian adversaries do? between 2015, May of 2015, and January of 2017, they stole legitimate computer IDs. They created factitious IDs. They created a whole new variety of malicious software, and they extended some existing pieces of malicious software, and they appropriated some existing um, actual legal pieces of software Uh, and modified them for the purposes of phishing and spoofing um, otherwise legitimate email accounts. They hacked 300 individuals involved in the 2016 campaign. They broke into private intranets, kind of thing that your company operates that you can't break out of. And they were able to steal as many as 50,000 documents at one time. That They literally were vacuuming up information. Most alarming to me is that they penetrated 21 state election systems, got through the firewalls, and actually stole the individual voter records of half a million voters. That means they have names, partial Social Security numbers, driver's licenses, uh, political party affiliations, addresses, and dates of birth of all of these half million individuals. For what purpose, I ask? We don't know the answer to that yet, but I'm sure we're going to learn. They purchased and 
and, or rented infrastructure to collect and store the data. And they did it around the world using legitimate um, service providers, and they paid for it with cryptocurrency. So one of the things that we need to demand of our government is a better understanding and some global reg- regulation on the world of cryptocurrency, saying that it's all contained in one blockchain database does not meet the requirement for safety and security of the world's monetary system. They developed and they deployed sophisticated websites that many of you, even me, looked at at some point during the year when uh, news was being leaked, et cetera, and you wanted, you know, you did a Google search and this thing called DC Leaks came up and you clicked on it and wham, you were in the hands of the Russians. You know, WikiLeaks went to them and said they're, they're identified as Organization One in the indictment, which means there's more to come, folks. But they said, look, you guys are inefficient in your distribution. We can do so much better if we work together. So the level of Russian cyber sophistication is frightening, absolutely frightening. Because a lot of this went on for more than a year. They had been inside the DCCC and the DNC for more than a year before the FBI notified the DNC that they had been hacked. And the DNC, rather than enlist help from the FBI, went to a private firm. And, and of course, what did the Russians do in response, according to this indictment? They went out and researched how that private firm worked and figured a workaround, which is how on the July 26th, when uh, then-candidate Trump said to the world, and, and I think it was typical Donald Trump off the top of his head, hey, Russia, if you've got all these, you've swept up all this stuff that we now know you have swept up. If you happen to have those 30,000 missing uh, Hillary Clinton emails, um, why, don't you, why don't you publish those? Well, the, that very night, that very night was the first time that the Russians actually attacked Hillary Clinton's own office. Now, the FBI apparently does not believe in coincidence because I can't tell you this from the indictment, but because I can put one and one together and add it up to two, uh, that is probably the result, that probably was the result of the first time the FBI thought beyond just stopping the Russians and started thinking about maybe there's more going on here than meets the eye. Because it's interesting that on July 31st, Peter Strzok, a name we've heard a lot about this week, wrote the email as the number two guy in counterintelligence that said, you know, maybe we need to start to take a look, a more formal look at what the Russians are doing. And so for everything that you've heard, and you've heard plenty about Peter Strzok, you didn't hear very much about how he feels about the Russians or what his history with the Russians is if you listened in 
on Thursday. And I'm Joyce Cordy, and you're listening to Reimagine America. We're talking about 12 Russians being indicted for crimes against the United States of America. That's what the, what the um, actual indictment says. Now, do we expect to see these people in a court of law? <laughs> Not likely. Do we expect that President Trump is going to be um, forceful in slamming down this indictment in front of, of Putin and say, Vladimir, we know you did it. Stop it. It's an act of war. If you continue, sanctions will get worse. And oh, yeah, it should be really clear to you from the level of detail in the indictment that if you want to play this game, we can play it better. Now, that's a capacity, that cyber capacity, unfortunately, is something we're good at, but we need to get even better at. And to that end, the United States Army opened just this week a new center in Austin, Texas, to work on 21st century warfare methods, because this is, without doubt, an act of war. Now, I don't think it's the end of the Mueller investigation. As one of the experts said, it's the beginning of the middle of the it's the beginning of the middle of the investigation, because Rod Rosenstein was very important to point out very careful to point out two things. One, no American is indicted in this indictment, but the investigation continues. And the indictment itself, the language of the indictment, mentions co-conspirators known and unknown to the grand jury. So the grand jury knows things that you and I don't. And I'd suggest that rather than having Congress try to impeach people who've spent uh, significant parts of their lives protecting us from the Russians, I think it might be really wise for all of us to take a deep breath, enjoy our summer, go swimming, go on vacation, do whatever, um, demand that Congress fix some of the real problems in front of us like appropriation bills, uh, figuring out why 3,000 kids um, can get lost in the uh, human, um, the HHS um, uh, foster care system, et cetera. The really day-to-day work of Congress should go on. Hearings uh, that lead us to a Supreme Court nominee uh, appointment by the time the term uh, begins in October, that's the work of Congress. Why doesn't Congress do that work and let Mueller and what is apparently an excellent investigative team do their work? Peter Strzok, if you've watched The Americans, the series The Americans, that's him. He's the guy who who rounded up, who chased down, who identified, spent 10 years giving disinformation to and chased down and rounded up and got expelled from the United States all of those 11 spies in 2010. This is a guy who spent 26 years of his life as he put in on Thursday, strapping on a gun in the defense of the United States of America. Now, he's a philandering husband, but he's neither a criminal um, nor, a, uh, nor a traitor. And the way that uh, certain members of Congress behaved on Thursday is uh, shameful. 
and Louis Gomer, that means you. And we'll be back with some closing thoughts. For more information on today's topic, visit reimagineamerica.org. Reimagineamerica.org. Now, back to Reimagine America on 860 AM, The Answer. And in the last few minutes that we have in our hour, let's get, talk about something closer to home. Recycling. I don't know about you, but I'm really careful to try to put everything I can into the blue can because I think I'm contributing to, um, you know, saving the planet. Well, it turns out that what used to be a money-making proposition for the state of California has become a money-losing proposition because like so many great ideas, um, nobody bothered to ask what, ha- what if and when, and when before they began the project. So rather than re- we, we're not really reducing waste, we're just increasing cost because more than half of what we put in the blue bin ends up in the landfill after it's been uh, reprocessed through a recycling center. It's a very intensive manual price, uh, process. Uh, and people are either thoughtless, um, think it's a joke, don't care, whatever, but um, we're supposed to put stuff that's re- that can be reused in those bins. And so dirty pizza boxes and dirty diapers should, are, are really hostile to the intent. Okay, um, and so if the price of recycling now exceeds the value that we can reclaim, uh, the Chinese don't want our paper anymore. Um, Vietnam's willing to pay five dollars, not a hundred dollars a ton for it. Uh, the governor just had to put fifteen million dollars into the bottle recycling program because it was losing money and he couldn't find people to do the recycling. And so, what we need in the recycling effort is some triage. Uh, We need to send less to the landfill from recycling. And the way to do that is by tagging the cans with what's acceptable and what's not. San Jose used to do that, and they don't do it anymore, but they need to re-up on that. Um, But we've also got to have the legislature reach out to the private sector, not just in California, but throughout the nation. And let's figure out some new ways to use some of that recyclable material within the United States. It could create jobs in Appalachia, for example, um, that would replace some of the jobs we are losing in the mining industries. I mean, one of the things that I have found really unusual is I use a particular kind of dog mat that does not have any fill in it. And if you look at the tag when you buy them, and they're really soft and lovely and they wash really easily, et cetera, and it says it's made from recycled plastic bottles. So there is what we need is more innovation, more ingenuity, and less direct taxpayer support for our recycling program. And on that note, I'm going to say tune in next Sunday. We're going to have a pair of guests who are partners from the Washing- from a Washington, D.C. situation management firm. If you've watched Scandal, they're crisis managers in Washington, D.C. The name of the firm is Denzel Hall. And we're going to talk about women tech entrepreneurs in the age of hashtag Me Too. There are big consequences, ladies, and we're going to talk about how to address those consequences in a positive way. In the meantime, if you want to learn more about 
things that we've talked about recently, like changing uh, the course of migration uh, between Latin America and the United States, or how close California is to still being the bear flag republic, go to reimagineamerica.org. If you'd like to listen to the podcast of this program, go to reimagineamerica.org and click on the radio, Reimagine America radio page. I know what interests me, but what I really want to know is what you want to talk about. So if you've got questions or you've got topics you want to ask or get answered on the air, send me an email at Joyce at reimagineamerica.org. I do try to respond to as many listener comments as I can. Reimagine America is independent and definitely nonprofit. If you appreciate our independent, results-oriented, post-political voice, please consider making a small donation at reimagineamerica.org. And in the meantime, we'll look forward to talking again next Sunday. Have a wonderful week. This has been Reimagine America with Joyce Cordy. Go to reimagineamerica.org. Join the forum, donate, tell others, and sign up to receive future podcasts. That's reimagineamerica.org. Together, we can reimagine America. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.